Hello, and welcome to the Chess Journal's Editor Highlights Podcast. Each month, Chess Editor-in-Chief Dr. Peter Mazzone highlights key articles from the current issue of the journal to help clinicians stay informed about new research in the fields of pulmonary, critical care, and sleep medicine. To introduce this month's episode, here is Dr. Peter Mazzone. Thank you for tuning in to the Editor's Highlight Podcast for the January 2024 issue of the Journal Chest. We have a great lineup of diverse content in this month's issue. Over the next 15 minutes or so, I'll provide a brief overview of key manuscripts published in each of our content areas. We'll start with our chest infections content area. Differences in outcomes of treatment of community-acquired pneumonia with first-line versus alternative antibiotic regimens are not clear. In this issue, Bay and colleagues report findings from a retrospective cohort study of 23,512 patients designed to evaluate whether there is a difference in in in-hospital mortality between first-line and alternative antibiotic regimens for treatment of patients hospitalized in a non-ICU ward setting with community-acquired pneumonia. 39.7% of patients received first-line treatment with a beta-lactam in macrolide. The adjusted risk difference for in-hospital mortality compared to first-line treatment was 1.5% for a beta-lactam, negative 0.9% for a fluoroquinolone, and negative 1.9% for a beta-lactam plus doxycycline. Beta-lactam use alone was associated with longer time to discharge and a possible small but clinically important increase in risk of death. These findings suggest first-line and alternative therapies for patients hospitalized with a non-severe community-acquired pneumonia can be considered effective regimens. Also in this section is a systematic review and meta-analysis of tobacco use and the risk of recurrence and mortality among people with tuberculosis, a multi-center retrospective study of the epidemiology and clinical patterns of lung abscesses in the intensive care unit, a multi-center retrospective observational cohort study of low versus conventional dose trimethoprim sulfamethoxazole treatment for pneumocystis pneumonia in non-HIV-infected patients, and a research letter analyzing SARS-CoV-2 risk and disease severity among people with bronchiectasis in three population registries. On to our COPD content area. The magnitude of the effect of moderate to vigorous physical activity initiation on real-world clinical outcomes in patients with COPD has not been well investigated. In this issue, Kim and colleagues report findings of an emulated target trial using nationwide cohort data designed to evaluate whether there is an association between regular moderate to vigorous physical activity initiation following a COPD diagnosis, and mortality. Among 110,000-person trials included in the study, 25% 
had moderate to vigorous physical activity increases. The adjusted hazard ratio of all-cause mortality for the increased physical activity group was 0.84, and of severe exacerbation was 0.90. Those most likely to have improved outcomes were patients older than 65 years, female patients, those who had never smoked, and patients with a higher Charlson comorbidity index score. These results suggest that initiation of moderate to vigorous physical activity can potentially reduce mortality and severe exacerbations in patients with COPD. Next is our critical care content area. There is limited data regarding the prognostic role of cardiogenic shock onset and the timing of hospital admission. In this issue, Baines and colleagues report findings from a consecutive series of 273 patients with cardiogenic shock designed to determine whether the timing of cardiogenic shock occurrence and the hospital admission time affect the risk of 30-day all-cause mortality. Cardiogenic shock onset during hospitalization was not associated with increased risk of all-cause mortality except when related to an acute MI. Off-hours admission was associated with improved risk of all-cause mortality. These findings suggest similar mortality for patients admitted with cardiogenic shock and those who develop cardiogenic shock during their hospital stay and improved mortality in those admitted outside of regular hours. Also in this section, is a report of the Minnesota Medical Operations Coordination Center, a COVID-19 statewide response, and a research letter that evaluated the association between Paxlovid and mortality in critically ill COVID-19 patients receiving invasive mechanical ventilation. On to our diffuse lung disease content area. The prevalence Clinical characteristics in survival of those with systemic sclerosis-related interstitial lung disease and pulmonary arterial hypertension alone or in combination is not known. In this issue, Moinsaday and colleagues report findings of a cohort study of the German Network for Systemic Sclerosis designed to determine the effect on survival of systemic sclerosis-associated interstitial lung disease with or without pulmonary hypertension. Data from 3,257 patients with a mean follow-up time of three and a half years was included. Interstitial lung disease was present in 34.5% in interstitial lung disease without pulmonary hypertension in 4.5% at baseline. At the end of follow-up, Interstitial lung disease was present in 47.6%, interstitial lung disease with pulmonary hypertension in 15.2%, and pulmonary arterial hypertension alone in 6.5%. Interstitial lung disease was present more often in the diffuse cutaneous form of systemic sclerosis. Five-year survival was 96.4% for patients without pulmonary involvement of their systemic sclerosis, which differed significantly between those with pulmonary involvement, and survival was worse 
for those with interstitial lung disease combined with pulmonary hypertension. Female sex, higher BMI, and a higher diffusing capacity were associated with lower mortality risk. These findings identify interstitial lung disease as the most prevalent form of pulmonary involvement in systemic sclerosis and interstitial lung disease with pulmonary hypertension as the most detrimental to survival. Completing this section is a research letter that compares the utilization of antifibrotic medications by patient income level. Onto our education and clinical practice content area. The role of respiratory pathogens in triggering acute chest syndrome is unclear. In this issue, Assad and colleagues report findings from an interrupted time series analysis of patient records from a national hospital-based surveillance system designed to determine the role of respiratory pathogens in acute chest syndrome epidemiology. 2,306 episodes of acute chest syndrome were included in the analysis, a significant decrease by 29.5% in acute chest syndrome incidents was observed after the institution of COVID-19 non-pharmaceutical interventions, and a significant increase by 24.4% after the interventions were lifted. Population-level incidence of respiratory pathogens suggested streptococcus pneumonia accounted for 30.9% of acute chest syndrome incidence and influenza 6.8%, while other pathogens had only a minor role. These findings suggest an impact of non-pharmaceutical interventions on acute chest syndrome incidence and the potential contribution of streptococcus pneumonia in triggering childhood acute chest syndrome. Also in this section is an original research article that reports the validation of a quality of life survey to predict the need for intervention in patients with idiopathic subglottic stenosis and a research letter describing the arithmetic behind the updated definition of a positive bronchodilator response. Our pulmonary vascular content area is next. Cutoff values to identify the estimated one-year mortality risk of pulmonary hypertension patients with cardiac magnetic resonance imaging require external validation. In this issue, Salantin colleagues analyzed data from treatment-naive patients with pulmonary arterial hypertension to determine the discriminative prognostic properties of the current cardiac magnetic resonance risk thresholds. 172 patients with cardiac magnetic resonance imaging were included, 11% of whom were classified as low risk, 45% as intermediate risk, and 44% as high risk. Poor survival discrimination was seen between risk groups at baseline, with better survival discrimination noted at first reassessment. These results suggest the recent proposed cardiac magnetic resonance imaging cutoffs may require adjustment to emphasize the importance of individual treatment response. Completing this section is a how I do it review about implementing a pediatric pulmonary embolism response team. 
Now our sleep medicine content area. There is uncertainty about the impact of obstructive sleep apnea and its phenotypes on cardiovascular disease. In this issue, Dean Miranda and colleagues report findings from a prospective community-based cohort of 1,956 individuals designed to determine if obstructive sleep apnea and clinical features such as daytime sleepiness are associated with incident subclinical coronary atherosclerosis. A significant association between obstructive sleep apnea and incidence of subclinical atherosclerosis was noted with an odds ratio of 1.26. Stronger effects were noted among those with excessive daytime sleepiness with an odds ratio of 1.66. Coronary artery calcium progression showed a positive correlation for both obstructive sleep apnea and obstructive sleep apnea with excessive daytime sleepiness. These findings suggest obstructive sleep apnea, particularly with excessive daytime sleepiness, predicts incident and progressive coronary artery calcification. Next is our thoracic oncology content area. The relationship between metabolic syndrome and lung cancer remains controversial. In this issue, Lee and colleagues report findings from a population-based prospective cohort study of over 330,000 participants, 77,173 with a diagnosis of metabolic syndrome, designed to evaluate the association of metabolic syndrome with the risk of lung cancer. 2,425 participants developed lung cancer over a median follow-up of 10.9 years. The hazard ratios of metabolic syndrome were 1.21 for overall risk of lung cancer, 1.28 for adenocarcinoma, and 1.16 for squamous cell carcinoma. Hazard ratios increased with the number of metabolic abnormalities. High-density lipoprotein cholesterol, waist circumference, and hyperglycemia were also associated with lung cancer risk. A stronger effect was noted in women and those who use tobacco. These findings suggest the importance of taking metabolic status and markers into consideration for the estimation of lung cancer risk and the primary prevention of lung cancer. Completing this section is a research letter describing the impact of diabetes on lung cancer screening efficacy in the National Lung Screening Trial. I encourage you to read our Humanities and Chest Medicine section, where you'll find a research letter evaluating disparities in the pre-lung transplant process for rural patients at a non-transplant center, an Advantage article titled, Playing Not to Lose. Finally, please review our case series publications for the month, which provide novel and educational cases to help improve your clinical skills. I hope you enjoy reading all of the high-quality content available in this month's issue of CHEST. As always, I am very grateful to the authors of this work, and reviewers who volunteer their time to improve the quality of these manuscripts, and to our editorial board for guiding everything that we do. Until next month, I hope you enjoy the January issue. Thanks for listening to the CHESS Journal's Editor Highlights Podcast. 
You can find the articles mentioned in this podcast and more on chestjournal.org. And if you're looking for more context and commentary on articles in the current issue, please check out the original Chest Journal podcast, which features in-depth discussions with the authors themselves. We'll be back again with more Editor's Highlights next month.